just a couple of things very quickly. Now, it's important that we teach Pastor Jason that by cooking a chicken on his new cooker, that he's got this grill that looks so delicious, that that tithe of 10% that God commands of him belongs to me. He's supposed to bring it over to the high priest's house so he can eat it. And not to do that is theft. So we're going to work on that. We need to make him teach and learn what his practice is. Just thinking about that, I'm sorry. I was laughing. I thought it was funny. Let me quickly say to you as we come upon the season that we know as Christmas, which actually comes from the concept of Christ Mass, where the whole concept comes from, which is often rejected of the reform that they will not necessarily participate in it. Let me two things I want to exhort you to, uh, especially those who watch this. We are running a facility. Uh, I say this every year and it never fails. The church here practices the season. It is a part of the liturgy. And as a result of that, uh, there usually is things behind us that we'll see where there's lights and evergreens and all kinds of things. Please don't write us and tell us how sinful that is. We only rent the facility. It's their facility. It's their right to do what they want to do with it. We come and accept in their graciousness and kindness, the fact that we have a place to come and worship every Lord's Day. And so that's just an exhortation. The other one is, we're coming to a time of the season where there are people, uh, which if we were going to identify it, it would be religious non-Christian people, those who call themselves, I'm spiritual but not religious. I always like those people more than anybody else. Or if we're talking political parties, the Democratic Party, take your choice, whatever you'd like to do. Or if you'd like, philosophically, we would say, the humanist will not and do not like Christmas. And just expect it. Philosophically, we say they are humanists. And that is, by the way, a religion. It's the religion of man. And when we talk about the season of the incarnation, which is really what this is, this is Mary incarnation season for us. Someone says, well, why do they have such hatred toward our theology and our what we believe actually took place, the incarnation, the greatest event in the history of the world, Christ coming to be incarnate among us, the second person of the Godhead. And it's easy for us to say, well, they're humanists. They're really God-haters. They may have a religion, but it's a religion of man. 
And some will say, well, I don't quite understand that. Could you explain it even simpler? And I would just give you this explanation. So I'm not going to give it again because we're probably going to hear a lot about it when I do give it. But the problem is a practical thing. For you see, you will not find among them three wise men or a virgin. And so that's the problem. And they hate it. Now, we are coming back to our doctrine of church discipline. When I say the word church discipline, what comes to mind? I want to, Don't say it out loud. I want you to think about it. What comes to mind? Because I'm going to tell you, it is the lack of the church, both in its teaching and practice, that have failed to make clear what the term church discipline, or we would say ecclesiastical discipleship, means properly. Now, we kind of got into this last Lord's Day. But I want to expand upon this. Very important. Because we don't think about it rightly. Not according to what the Word of God would teach us. That we need to understand, to think, and to apply. Both in our lives personally and in the life of our church. So I want to... In this lecture, this is lecture number nine, if you're keeping up with it, I want to talk about the importance of positive church discipline, which is almost, someone would say, if they only know what they hear of, in most churches today, and some churches they never hear that word or that phrase, they would say, what's positive about it? Well, I want to be able to deal with it. Now, we look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20 as the one text that is often cited dealing with the question of church discipline. And we've read this, and again, we will go back to our Lord who says, this is our Lord saying this. And I quote you, beginning at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother, who's your brother? He who professes faith in Christ. He who says, I'm a Christian. If your brother sins against you, what does he do? He transgresses the Ten Commandments toward you. We are never called to violate the law of God morally against any person, whether it be your brother or even if a person is not your brother, even if they're not a believer, or even if they falsely profess the faith, or even if they rightly profess the faith. Nevertheless, when he sins, transgresses the law of God, First John tells us that Sin is the transgression of the moral law of God. It says, go and tell him his fault. You go. You go and you tell him. 
It's a one-to-one -one issue. Now, this is a private sin. He's done this to you. It's not something that is done in the open where people see it. But this is a private sin. If he sins against you, you go and tell him. The fault between you and him alone. So you have, you see this concept. When you look at the context of this, you think, well, this is what church discipline is all about. No, this isn't all that it's about. This actually deals with the question of corrective church discipline. We're talking about positive church discipline. And then he goes on to say, if he hears you, that is if he says, oh, I'm sorry. Not that he says, well, it wasn't my intent to do that, and he finds a way of trying to justify a transgression. No, if, if you transgress, you transgress. When someone comes and says, I'm offended by something, you violated the law of God toward me. You sinned against me. The answer is, you need to tell him, and you need to tell him how that happened. And if someone comes to you and says that, it's not your duty to try to justify it. If you, even if you unintentionally did it, you did it nonetheless. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, I only wanted to shoot the guy in the arm, but I accidentally killed him. But hey, I had good intention. I just wanted to wing the guy. I didn't want to kill him. But you see, the crime's done. Well, when we use the word crime, we think of those things which are civil or criminal trespasses against people. But spiritual crime is transgression of the moral law. So if he hears you, oh, I'm sorry, I did not mean to do that. That was not my intent. But I've done it, and I have, because you say. Not that you have to understand it. They are the ones that are offended. You say, what? I hear you. I apologize. And I will not do it again. You have gained your brother. Well, it was already my brother. How did I gain him? He means he's sinned against you and he's caused a breach by going to him and saying, hey, you've transgressed the law of God toward me and I'm offended. He will heal the breach. And that's how you gain your brother. He repents. He didn't say, Apologize. The Bible doesn't say you apologize. It always talks about fruits of repentance. You need to repent, and repentance is not only acknowledging transgression, but it is ceasing from all transgression. But if he will not hear you, if he doesn't want to acknowledge he's done wrong, with you, take with you one or two more. 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It's not a he said, she said. It's we heard them say this. He said this, and he said this, and you have two witnesses. That which is required by the law of God, even in criminal or civil issues, outside of the ecclesiastical perspective of the life we live in the church. And if he refuses to hear them, they say, hey, we've listened to all this and you are, you've transgressed the law of God. You owe this person repentance. If he says, no, I'm not going to do it. Then he says, tell it to the church. It goes to those who have the duty of dealing with the sin and to the whole body of the church that this transgression has gone, it's gone unrepented, and this person needs to be publicly disciplined for it. Now, you don't have to be disciplined for every admonition, rebuke, publicly. You don't need a record of it. We live every day with people making exhortations to us. You know, brother, I wouldn't say it that way. I wouldn't do it this way. I wouldn't talk that way. Well, you're going you're gonna to offend somebody. You've got to be careful. Why? Because we might be offensive in a way that violates the law of God. And we're going to have to, therefore, repent for not only what we have thought, but if there is an action that goes with it, repent of that as well. So sin can be not only that which is committed in the heart, but can also be that which is manifest in the flesh. But if he refuses even to hear the church, i.e., the whole body of Christ says, wait a minute, the elders and pastors have taken care of this. These people will not listen. This person will not hear what his brother has to say. He does not listen to the witnesses. He does not hear the body. Then the whole body is, it is brought before them. He says then, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. In Christ's day, there was no worse job than a tax collector. Even a heathen is bad. Tax collectors, worse. A heathen is a sinner. He practiced hedonistic practices. But the tax collector, he steals. And he steals from you. And then our Lord goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if any two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, dealing with what? This context. So often this is misinterpreted. Oh, two or three people meet together. That's a church. No, it's not. The context is church discipline. 
Concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together, what? In my name, for what purpose? To deal with this transgression. I am there in the midst of them. The authority is established that this is Christ. Through us, via the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing this discipline to pass. And you've asked the sovereign creator, God, if he will not repent, we've done everything we can do. We don't consider him anything but a heathen and a tax collector. As you have commanded us, what do we do? We turn him over to God and say, you deal with him. You bring him to repentance. Whatever you have to do, God, if they're truly your children, bring them to repentance. That's the bad side. Because I got news for you. The only thing we can do is say you need to repent. We're not even allowed to shoot you. Not even wing you. We're not even allowed to take a stick and beat you. But not God. God's going to be able to do whatever he needs to do to bring you to repentance. The Bible says in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And when we commit someone who will not hear his brother, he will not hear the witnesses, and he will not hear the church, we declare them non-believers. They're living in sin. Why in the world would any of us believe that that person's a believer who will not repent of their sin? And we turn them over to God. Now, God's going to deal with you. What does that mean? He could bring guilt, conviction, you'll repent. He brings guilt and re conviction, and you don't repent. So God ups the ante. Okay, I'll bring trial to your life. Trial comes, nothing, no repentance. God says, okay, it's only going to get worse, it's not going to get better. It's not like he's going to judge you overnight and just kill you. That's the worst part. We think when we sin, just like the Jews did, oh, God in his long-suffering has proven that we haven't sinned against him because we haven't been judged yet by him. Do not mistake the long-suffering and the common goodness of God for acceptance of your sin. Because someday, he's going to say, enough. And you know, if it cost you your life, too late. Now you're going to stand before God as an unrepentant sinner, and he's going to say, you're exactly what you were. You fooled yourself. You thought you were a Christian. You thought you had fire insurance. 
bad news. Policy canceled. We began last Lord's Day teaching on the meaning of church discipline, carefully noting that it is rooted in the etymological idea of learning and education and tutoring. Do you know that when we send children to school, whether it's homeschool or private school, we teach them to what? We say they're a student, they're there to learn. But what are they really there to do? To be discipled. They're there to learn, to be educated, to be tutored, to be taught, to be schooled, whatever phrase you would like or word. But the outcome actually bears a fruit. I mean, if you go to school and you're only a student and never a disciple, you're the dumbest thing on God's earth. Because you have maybe heard it, but you won't listen to it. No, all learning has an outcome. We have said that there is both positive and negative structure to all discipline, to all learning, to all education, to teaching. Now, today, truthfully, it's all negative in education. I went to public school, but that was in the old days. That's when you still were told, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't run around with children that are going to be someday in prison. Because you're going to be there with them. No. All education has a positive and a negative structure to it. It has, in the positive side, the promotion of what? Of maintaining the condition for what? Learning. The negative function means to rule out, to root it out. To root out all things that would hinder the necessary conditions to learning, to doing the positive side. The goal of discipline is what? Peace with understanding. To be able to understand and to be able to assess and to live rational lives. That's what we do in life. It's the positive side. You see, the problem when I say church discipline, you automatically think, oh, that person's going to get his bottom kicked by the elders of the church. No. The day you joined this church, or any church that says they're truly a church of Jesus Christ, you began your discipleship. You want to know how messed up people are? What does Matthew 28 say to us? Go ye therefore and walk. 
teach all the nations. That word actually from the Greek is ethnos, meaning the family, the heritage, the kinsmen. Go and teach your own people. Doing what? Discipling them. Bringing out of them a fruit. A fruit by which they are able to be both at peace in their life and at peace with all men. Peace with understanding. A fruit. A work. You don't go to school to not learn. To not know how to put your hand to the plow, as they used to say years ago, and to bring something positive to pass. I went to college. If I was going to be, and this is an impossibility because I don't have this side of the creativity and education, but let's say a NASA scientist. I'm not going to be a rocket scientist. If you see my math, you'd know why. Good science requires good math, and I don't have good math. Now, I have the basic structure. I've had bookkeeping and accounting and all that kind of things. But when you get into calculus, trigonometry, and all that stuff that goes on beyond that, not me. And I got friends, some who even sit here today, they can do that. And I just look at it and smile and say, yeah, right on. I understand, yeah. I, I don't really understand. I'm just agreeing because I don't know if it's right or wrong. I couldn't tell you if it was right or wrong. But if I was a math major, I could tell you it's right and wrong. I could tell you how to build things, how certain things would work and certain things would not. You see, education brings forth a fruit, a development in your life. That's the purpose of it. I mean, if you're going to go to college and learn nothing, skip it. I can teach you to dig a ditch, but even that education requires you to put a shovel in the ground and to throw out the dirt. And I got to teach you how to do a hole that is going to be long and you're going to have to build it for a purpose. And that purpose has got to have a certain type of a dimension and structure to it in order that it may be able to function for what you are intending its use. So you got to get educated. Godly education or discipline This is what we're dealing with. See, you see the deceptionness of church discipline. It only means discipleship within the church. That's all. Comes via the word of God. It means that we are to trust and to rest upon God's promises as found in the Holy Scripture, which will grow out of a heart that desires to please God. Conformity through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Seeking what? Peace. You know, if you got a job, one of the things that you want to know, how to perform the job so that my boss don't come in every day and yell at me. Because you know what? When you know your job, you have a peace. You know you're doing it right. And as long as you do it right, you and the boss are going to be good friends. But if he has to come in every day and say, you know, you're still not doing it right. I'm sorry, you've been here two years. What do we need? Ten more years to get you to do it right? That's when they usually say things that are hurtful. Are you an idiot? That means you can't learn. Are you stupid? That means you can't learn. Are you brain dead? It means you can't think. You can't learn. As a Christian, <coughs> excuse me, we are seeking the peace that only God can provide for us. That's why positive and negative structure of discipline must be utilized in the church. However, as the church grows, so will grow the offenses. The bigger the church, the more the offenses. Now, the smaller the church, the offenses are magnified. Because you don't have a lot of people. I mean, if we had 500 people here today, you wouldn't know all the offenses. It would be too many people to keep up with. Only those that are reported or publicly done would be the ones that you would know of. So as the church grows in number, so will grow the offenses. With the offenses will come the necessity of what? The need to reclaim. Those who have professed the faith in Christ that must live according to the word of God as it commands us. You see what's going on? Discipline. Positive. You're doing positive discipline week in and week out. This is what God says. You heard, I preach through the law of God. Our assistant pastors are now teaching us through the law of God. And what are they teaching us? These are the things God expects of your life. It's not man-made progress. We just heard that this morning. The law of God is all-encompassing. God owns everything, including you. Even if you're not a Christian, you're owned by God. In Romans 9, he says, it's like having plateware. Some plates are created to be used every day and thrown away when they're worthless. And some are so designed to be kept forever. What's the commonality of that meaning? Some are going to be, all of them are going to be plates. All of them are going to be humans. Some are going to be elect in Christ to be mine forever and cherished. To be in a state of glorification with Christ for eternity. The rest are going to be dealt with just like you would with regular tableware. 
when it wears out, when it's done, you throw it out. It has no value. Too often the concept of discipline is only thought of in the conduct of what? In the conduct and context of remedial education. Remedial. Meaning what? To retrain. To reinstruct. To say, no, you didn't do it right. You didn't get it. You, you see, you don't understand. Time must be given to the promotion of and the preventative aspects just cannot be ignored in their practice. You see, when a pastor gets up and tells you a lot of stories, oh, they sound good. God, motherhood, apple pie, and all those wonderful little stories that they tell, and they're tearjerkers. Oh, I mean, they just play on the emotions. Well, that's all kind and good, I guess, in its own way. But they're not teaching in the Word of God. They're not saying, you know what? There's a certain expectation that God puts on your life on how to live for him. Are you meeting that expectation? When we ignore the promotional and preventative work of this discipline, it will demand discipline become remedial, curative or a remedy, if you will, of their faulty actions. And thus, it often begins to accumulate, and it begins to even have a more negative effect in the person's personality, the way they think, the life that they live, and the actions that they present themselves in every day that they wake up. The attention of the church and its leadership is refocused upon the remedial discipline, that which is corrective. And thus, what happens? Less time is given to the promotional or preventative. But when there's no remedial action, the person is just left to live in their sin. You don't want people to tell you you're about. You go to doctors for what reason? You want something fixed. You go to the doctor and say, hey, this is really bothering me. Can you fix it? What do you think you go? You want remedial correction to it. Curative. You want a remedy. Doctor, I'm having bad headaches. What do you think is causing this? Can we find a way of trying to get rid of these headaches? Our realm isn't the physical. Only in the actions that you take. Our realm is spiritual, but the spiritual applies both to what that which is non-corporeal, the spirit of the soul, and that which is manifest in the flesh. 
Now you can come and say to me, Pastor, I'm having this real problem. And I need that. Tell me, what, what do you think medically is wrong with me? And my answer is going to be, I didn't stay at the Holiday Inn last night. I don't watch medical programs that much on TV. I have no idea. That's not my work for remedial or curative or remedy to your life and sin. That's my calling. You're in sin. You need to straighten your life out. Now, a Christian wants what? To please God. What does a non-Christian want? To not please God. What will a Christian do? Man, when I'm wrong, tell me. What will a non-Christian do? I don't want you to tell me. You know, it goes on in life. Nobody likes to be told. Nobody. Part of sin nature that still affects us, even as believers. Too often, we want to be autonomous. I'll decide for myself what I don't like. I don't need you sticking your nose in my business. Oh, wow, God called me to stick my nose in your sin business. That was the commandment in Matthew 18. You're going to tell God he isn't smart enough to figure it out? We must, at all times, we must win sins, a cure in your life, when they affect the way you live, outwardly, in your flesh. They must. If they are not resolved privately, they have to be resolved publicly. And some sins become public at some point. And the church does everything it can do. We admonish, we rebuke, we suspend from the Lord's table, which is the lesser sign of saying, you're on the verge of being excommunicated. You're not allowed to take of this. Why? Because you are not proving yourself to be a believer. And then what happens with excommunication? We don't kick you out of the auditorium. We just simply say, you're not a Christian and we're not to fellowship with you. Except within the context of family matters. And I'll get to that when we get to that point in this series. But it's very important for you to understand. It is because of this that discipline has such a negative reaction by people. I say church discipline, you think of remedial correction. Just mention it. Ah, the pastors, the elders, they've gone after that guy. They're a bunch of thugs. They're just going around trying to beat people up. They're carrying a big stick. And when you goof up, they swat you in the head. 
Even if you're not doing that, you're disciplined. On the positive side. You see, that side isn't being taught properly. You're under discipline from the time you come here. The question is, is it going to be prescriptive and preventative, or is it going to be corrective or remedial? Yes, discipline does have a corrective side, but it must also have a preventative side as well. Preventative discipline involves the teaching of God's truth, that is the word of God, and it will promote godliness in both what you believe, doctrine, and how you practice Christianity in your life. This is what really hurts people. It's not that we say you're not living for Christ. The answer is they don't want to practice what they say they believe. And that's what really gets them. You've called them out. Hey, you're walking in sin. You've got to repent. Why? It's a part of the human nature that we live with. You don't like it. You don't like to be corrected. But the correction is from God. This is God's way of doing it before he gets directly involved. I'm telling you, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And if you think you're going to escape the judgment of God, you got another thing coming. You're going to find yourself in hell the day you wake up from your death. You're going to pass from this life to the next and you're going to be surprised. I'm in front of God, and he says, ha, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You were never my child. Oh, you said you were, but you know what? You didn't act. You didn't practice. You didn't put on the fruit or the good works that I ordained for you to walk in. You wanted no one to tell you what to do, including me. I appointed men to teach and train you, and you rejected them. But you know what? You didn't reject them. You rejected me. And therefore, it's the same principle behind when you have a true, righteous, and godly ordained government. We're to obey that government. Because Romans tells us in chapter 13 that God ordains government. And to reject government is to reject God. That's why we fear government. Oh, we don't fear that government can put us to death. We can die from a lot of things. The fear is that God will reject us. Because it is proven that we are not his children and we are not doing what he's commanded us to do. Thus, this type of discipline that we're talking about today is what? It's teaching to observe. Not just facts and data 
but how that those facts and data are employed within the Christian life so that it may mature in the growing of God's grace in you to be a mature child of God. Here is the substance that is important in understanding this concept of preventative discipline. When we teach the pure word of God in both doctrine and practice in such a way that people grow in God's grace and knowledge of his truth, there will be far less need for remedial discipline within the church of Jesus Christ. I can stand up here and plead all day long. Don't sin. Don't get involved in transgressions of the law of God. Here's the way you need to live. This is what the Bible says. I have, I have no dog in a fight on ethics dealing with the concept of man-made laws. I'm bound to one law, God's law, moral law, the Ten Commandments as they are summed up in. That's all I've ever asked you to do. Please follow the word of God. I've asked you to do nothing else. All teaching, all education, all discipline does one thing. It trains you to be a disciple, a practitioner of what God calls Christianity. This concept of preventative discipline allows for both one First, self-discipline, that's correcting one's own self back into the path, way of righteousness by obedience to the commands of God. And secondly, being assisted by a brother or sister who will direct them back to the pathway of righteousness. My brother comes. He says, I've transgressed. I don't listen. He comes with witnesses and says, I've transgressed. There's the two principles. Preventative discipline. It prevents you from needing to have the corrective side. Now, back in the day, this is long, there may be only four or five of us that know this, but you actually could get a whipping when you went to school. As a matter of fact, if you were in my home, my mother and father would say, if you get a spanking at school, guess what? You get home, you're going to get another one. I never could figure out why you had to pay for the same transgression twice. But that was the rule. I guess the fear is, you think it's going to be bad at school? Wait till you get home and see just how bad it's going to get. Well, the principle is basically the same. We discipline you here when we need corrective discipline. And if you think this is bad, wait till God gets holy. It's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Thus, this type of teaching and training will eliminate the need for a formal remedial discipline, corrective discipline. Well, this is the goal. It must be remembered that it is only a goal and not the reality of every church. 
Most churches today don't even know what discipline is. Or if they do, they think it means they practice evil things at that church. They're controlling. I never asked you to do anything that God's word did. I've not said to you, you must wear blue socks every day of the week. You must not dance. I've never told you which music to listen to, except for that which would glorify God and would not trans encourage you to sin. You don't want to listen to that. I've never told you what movie to go to. I've never told you what TV to think. I say use discernment. Here's the law of God. You ought to be able to figure this out. Does this encourage you to violate the law of God? I always take you back to God's standard. This is the goal. This is where you need to be. How much do you really love Jesus Christ? He died for you. Can you not live for him? He didn't ask you to die for him per se. Just live for him. Oh, you're not going to be perfect. I already believe that. You're still sinners saved by grace. But the key word here is grace. You've been brought into the kingdom of God as children of the living God. Well, some churches have no concept of this. None whatsoever. Revelation 2.2 says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have half found them alert. It's the job of the church to test the teaching, the doctrine, if you will, the practice, those who call themselves children of God, and see whether or not they're really of God. It's what he says when Christ is evaluating in Revelation 2 2 this church. What is the ultimate goal in this preventative discipline? It is creating a what? Good order to an individual's life. That's all. This good order in the life of the individual is first and foremost designed to remove what? Sinful practices or habits. Corruptions that you've allowed to enter into your life. How this differs from the modern evangelical usage of the phrase church discipline. It only has a negative connotation. That church practices church discipline. That's because it's a real church. Now, we would never condone a church that abuses people. You can only apply the principles of the word of God and in the way that God says to apply them. We are not legalists. We are biblicists. We follow the word of God. The phrase church discipline today simply means the way in which we just get rid of the people who are in, in the church and are basically looked at as troublemakers. 
That's all it's for. How can we get them out? We tried so hard to get them in. Now we're going to try real hard to get them out. That's not the goal of church discipline. I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay. I want you to grow in the grace of God, in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of his word, to live godly Christian lives before him. This is why we must have both preventative and remedial discipline within the church. Now in this process of preventative discipline is the full duty and responsibility of the church and its leadership. It must include the pastors for it is he, both the pastor and those who assist him who will do the preaching and the teaching primarily. His duties within the body of Christ. It must include the elders who will be doing what? Personal and family shepherding along with helping in the discipline, the discipling of the people. It must include deacons who will what? Personally be visiting the home to help take care of the needs. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for what? The equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The whole church is a ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ to be built up in the truth of God. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and as so much more as you see the day approaching. That day is the day of judgment. How dare you think you can be a Christian and be outside of the church of Jesus Christ? How do you say to Christ, well, I love you, but not your bride? I got bad news for you. You find a husband that says, well, you can be my friend, but you can hate my wife. He isn't a good husband at all. As a matter of fact, his wife probably needs to take a good look at her life and his life and decide, do you really love me the way you're commanded in Ephesians to love me as Christ loved his church? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. Is the word of God dwelling in you richly? Are you, what, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord? Do you really have joy as a Christian? Do you really know what it means to be joyful in Christ? To have that peace that passes all understanding. A peace that the world cannot steal from you. Because you know who owns all things. Who controls all things. And who will bring it all to judgment in the end. My friends, the true church is a church that is teaching the truth of God. It's teaching from his word. This work of teaching begins with the pastor or pastors 
And it must include the officers of the church in their preventive work of counseling and instructing and directing people how to live the Christian life. Preventive. You've learned something new today, for sure. Wow, discipline is not all corrective. Being a disciple doesn't mean I have to be in sin and therefore people have to come and push me, beat me, hit me with a stick, take guns and shoot at me. Doesn't do any of that. It's just people trying to say, look, you've got a transgression in your life. You need to repent of it. You need to learn how to live for God in a way that will please him. According to his moral law. If you can't do that, I say to you, don't tell me about your love. True faith has works. Don't tell me you have faith in God. Most people, when they say, well, I, I have a real faith in God, it means I am religious or at best spiritual, and I'll determine for myself what the Word of God says but they can't. They twist it. They try to destroy it. They try to mangle it so that their life fits in it, but they don't allow it to judge them. I'll tell you the truth. They're not of Christ if that's what they want to do. Those who are of Christ want to live for God. Bring the word. Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. What does it really say? Let's interpret it rightfully, not wrongfully, not twisting it to your own end. And what should we be doing in the meantime? As we will be facing corrective church discipline at all points in the life of the church. We're only one year away from being 40 years of the existence of this church. We pray for those people. We pray because their eyes are wide shut. They don't see. They don't believe. They don't practice. They say one thing, but their life betrays what they say. Christianity is not just a confession of doctrine. It's a practice of that doctrine in your life. It's the Christian life. And what do we do? We pray for them. We love them. We don't turn our backs upon them. We don't shun them. That's unbiblical. We don't shun non-believers. We still treat them with kindness gentleness. We're called to live in peace with all men. We'll see that in the scripture. Very clear. Says it right out. We're still kind. We're courteous. We're gracious. We're long-suffering. We take on those communicable attributes of our God and the life that we live in Christ. And we pray 
for those who cannot live the life that God has called them to live as they profess to be of Christ when in reality they've only fooled themselves and they're not. I beg you, look at your life. How are you doing with the preventative discipline? How are you doing with being educated? Are you learning the word of God? Are you studying the word of God? Are you hiding the word of God in your heart? Does it become evident in the life that you live? That's the question. That's my sole goal as pastor. To tell you you've got to live the way Christ said for you to live. If you don't, my job is to say this person is not a believer. Because they don't manifest any repentance or fruit of the Spirit of God within them. Tell me everything you want to tell me. Sit here and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but don't live for him in your life daily. I got news for you. Words without meaning. Yeah, the Christian life, it's a hard life. Oh, it requires so much work. And if I've got to do it, the good news, or if you want the bad news, is you got to do it too. You don't get choices here. And if you think you've got choices not to do it, i got bad news for you. You're not a part of it. Why has the church grown so indifferent to Christ in his word? You know what it is? There is no fear of God, Paul says in Romans. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They really don't believe he's going to deal with them that way. And you know why? Because he's so long-suffering and kind. Payday's coming. The day is approaching. I hope you're ready for that day. Because when it gets here, Judgment is going to fall. And believe me, you will be judged. I will be judged. We'll all be judged. Not on all that we said, but on all that we have done in our life. Please, I beg you, take a very close look at your life. You may be religious, but this lost as a ball on high grass. Every once in a while, you may dig up something and go, well, I, I do this. Great. Even a hog digs up an acorn every now and then. The question is, are you at war with sin? Are you really trying to live for Christ? Are you really wanting to follow the word of God? I mean, do you really want to do it? I didn't say it'd be easy to do it. I said, do you want to do it? That's the question. 
and I exhort you in Christ. Please, consider what our God says to us very carefully. You're a disciple. You've been a disciple since you've joined this church. So you've been under the discipline of this church from the beginning. This is what church discipline is all about. We do this first so we don't have to go to the second part, the negative side. This is positive stuff. Take heed to the word and doctrine, to the life that we've been called to live as Christians. Shall we pray?